perhaps like a dummy on a hot summer night. I'm going to move from the floor up here to the top. That way I'll be good and sweaty by the time it's over with. I, I noticed this morning that when you got done, it's not near as hot when you stay down below uh, than when you come up here. I, but, uh, but anyway, um, this evening we are going to be looking at something that I have sort of chose to plug in ever so often. Uh, and that is a series of lessons that I've entitled Location, Location, Location. Uh, it was in March that we did one uh, of a similar vein. We talked about where John the Baptist baptized people um, and, and where that was. This was supposed to be in June, I think it's in early June, um, that you all may remember there was a Sunday night that there was tornado warnings, I think, uh, about four or five o'clock, and so we ended up not having church. And so I pushed it back. So I thought, about, I thought we would talk about this uh, this evening uh, in here. And so what we're going to be talking about tonight is, as you can see from the title, where Jesus began his ministry. But I asked a question, though, that I probably asked for at least sort of reference back in March when we talked about John the Baptist. And that is, do you ever um, read a book or a newspaper, uh, see something on television, and think about where that took place? You may see something on the news, and if it says that this took place in Lexington, we all know where that is. If it was near the mall, maybe we've been there. If it took place in Danville or Stanford or Lancaster, we can all relate to that as well. But there's probably places where we see things on the news that happen, and we think, I've never heard of that place. Or maybe it's somewhere in eastern Kentucky or western Kentucky, northern Kentucky, and we think, well, I've heard of that, but I'm pretty sure I've never went there. Or maybe it might be a place where, well, I had a great aunt that moved there 70 years ago, and we never went, and she never came back. We, you know, we all know those kinds of places. Well, when we think about where things happen, some obviously resonate a little more than others. But geography sort of helps us engage what we've read about. So knowing where something took place gives us a little added information. We talked some about this on our Wednesday night classes, but, uh, and it seems like we, we never get too far from the Sea of Galilee. And if you're a Wednesday night attender, you know that the weather blows down onto the Sea of Galilee. We've talked about that quite a bit. But it gives us sort of an understanding, maybe a better idea of what took place. So for instance, let me ask you this question. What is Bethlehem's location relative to trade routes. Why would something like that be important? That's not what we're talking about tonight, but what do we know about Bethlehem? Well, we know Jesus was born there. Well, why would it matter if there was a trade route there? Well, that's where roads are going to go. And so we know why Jesus was maybe born in one place, but not in another. I say that just because there are like little trails that we can take to learn more about and so I ask you that, I think about that, I want us to think about this as we go. Again, the goal here is not necessarily for you to be able to locate every single thing on a map, but for you to better understand why things happen, when, and where they might happen. First of all, tonight I want us to think about how geography can show the scope of God's mission. Let's think about this for a second. In the book of Mark, on two different occasions, he tells the story about Jesus 
feeding large crowds. The terms usually given is Jesus feeds the 5,000, Jesus feeds the 4,000. Well, on Wednesday nights when we talk about miracles, we've talked about the 5,000. We've not talked about the 4,000 one just yet. But he tells both of these stories. Well, there's probably a reason why that story is told. One, feeding a lot of people with almost nothing is a significant event. But during the time of Jesus, as you sailed across the Sea of Galilee, the western side was the Jewish side. The eastern side was the Gentile side. Could it be that Jesus fed crowds on both the Gentile and the Jewish side in order to show his care and his offer of salvation for all people? See, if he only worked with one side, then that's going to leave the other side sort of left out, right? What if all of you all, and most everybody in here sits in the same seat every time you come? What if every single time that we came to church, I talked to every single person over here, and I never said a word to anybody over here? Why would I do that? Well, that would be a bad thing, right? But if I did, would you start to feel a little left out on this side? Some of y'all may not. Some of y'all may think it's better off not come talk to me anyway. Lois and I, we only talk at night anyway. We don't talk in the morning. We've established that situation. But it would seem like I was maybe favoring one side over another. But we see Jesus operate on both sides of the lake. If you look at borders around the Sea of Galilee at the time of Jesus, it is a multi-ethnic collection of people. There are a lot of people there. I was talking with Maria uh, this past week, and she was talking about all the people that worked under her at her job in New York. And she rattled off country after country after country after country. All of those people. And they all live within this sort of box in New York. And it's Chinese, and it's Japanese, and it's Indian, and it's Russian, and it's Spanish speakers, and it's French. All these different people. And you got to figure out a way to sort of make that work. Well, Jesus lived in an area that was sort of diverse like that as well. And so when we see references to they went to the other side of the shore, or the other side of the Sea of Galilee, they're not just developing the plot, if we're thinking about it that way, but it also showcases a love that Jesus had for all sorts of people. This helps us, understanding what this is will help us a little bit, understanding Jesus' reasoning. In Mark chapter 5, in verse 19, Jesus told a former uh, man who had been demon-possessed, he said, go home to your friends, tell them what great things the Lord has done for you, and how he has had compassion on you. That was on the Gentile side of the lake. We talked about that a few weeks ago on Wednesday night. But that man wanted to go with Jesus, and Jesus said, no. I need you to stay. I need you to go tell your friends what has been done. Now, he stayed on that Gentile side of the lake, spread this good news that he had. However, Acts chapter 9, verse 15, the Lord called Paul a chosen vessel of mine to bear my name before Gentiles, kings, and the children of Israel. We see in the New Testament that Paul established Christian communities in port cities all around the Mediterranean. All of that to get to sort of spread the word of God. Now let's think about this for a second. Two different people, two different people that Jesus had helped, one of them was told stay, one of them was told to go. There's a reason for that, right? This is not Jesus playing favorites or anything like that, but sometimes we can do a lot more work right here, and sometimes 
we can do a lot more work over there. We all know, uh, you know, Brian Hall comes every so often and gives us an update on work in Guyana. What if every single one of us this week, if Brian is going to Guyana, we all went with Brian to Guyana. We all loaded every single one of us. And then Sunday morning at 9.30 people show up. What's here? There's not a single person here. Well, it's good that we've all went to Guyana, but what have we left right here? We sort of went to the mission field, but we've left an area here. And so we have people sometimes that'll go on, sometimes that'll need to stay. And so tonight we're going to talk about this and talk about how that both location kind of help us just kind of helps to spread the gospel. It can be going and staying for both. I want you to turn to Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to talk about tonight where was Jesus. We'll get to that in just a second. But where Jesus began his ministry. So I want you to look at Isaiah chapter 9. We're going to read verses 1 through 7 right here. Isaiah 9, 1 through 7. Especially the last couple of verses will sound very familiar um, to each of you. But let's start with Isaiah chapter 9, verse 1. Nevertheless, the gloom will not be upon her who is distressed, as when at first he lightly esteemed the land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, and afterward more heavily oppressed her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan in Galilee of the Gentiles. The people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in the land of the shadow of death, upon them a light has shone. You have multiplied the nation and increased its joy. They rejoice before you according to the joy of harvest, as men rejoice when they divide the spoil. For you have broken the yoke of his burden and the staff of his shoulder, the rod of his oppressor, as in the day, as in the day of Midian. For every warrior's sandal from the noisy battle and garments rolled in blood will be used for burning and fuel of fire. For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given, and the government will be upon his shoulder, and his name will be called Wonderful, Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace there will be no end. Upon the throne of David and over his kingdom, to order it and establish it with judgment and justice. From that time forward, even forever, the zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Now, I would imagine that verse 6 there sounds real familiar to you. And a lot of times around Christmas, you'll hear that verse being read, right? But there's some other verses that may sound familiar to you as well. Had you listened and paid attention to what Pat was reading a minute ago, you saw some repeat there, right? Pat read from Matthew, but it's kind of a repeat of what we saw there in Isaiah. So let's talk about this and what we're looking at. Well, Isaiah is attempting to convince his listeners that God can be trusted and his promises for a good future for his people will be fulfilled. There's a reason for this. Sometimes people have to be convinced of things. It's not hard to convince people of things when things are going well. It's hard to convince people when things are going poor. It's hard to make people understand that. There's a reason why Isaiah talks about the places that he does. The power of this passage concludes the section that began with the wicked king Ahaz. And that's his uh, image right there that was on a coin uh, there of this king. Because of Ahaz's defiant disobedience <clears throat> to the will of God, 
his reign experienced devastation and destruction from the Assyrian army. It was what you would say a time of great darkness and distress. This is the king that it was. The Assyrians were up here. And the Assyrians looked down here. You see where Jerusalem is. This is Israel right up here. Of course, Judah's a little bit further south. But the Assyrians looked at this and said, if they're weakened, we can go in and take from them. Now, what does that matter to Jesus? Well, we'll get to there in just a second. But when the neighbor says we can go take them, and then they go do, who are the people that's going to suffer the most? The people that will suffer the most are the people that come in contact right there from the beginning. So if you live in this part of Israel, you're going to be suffering quite a bit. Well, guess what those parts of Israel are? Well, it's the same thing that Pat read in Matthew, and it's what we just read in Isaiah. The lands of Zebulun and Naphtali are in the northernmost part of Israel. Without a doubt, the people that suffered the worst from the invasion were the people who lived right there. 2 Kings 15.29 says, In the days of the Pekka king of Israel, the king of Assyria came and took all the land of Naphtali, and then, last part of the verse, he carried them captive to Assyria. What I mean by that is the people who just happened to live there, and the reason that they lived there is because that's where the 12 tribes of Israel, they sort of settled. They just happened to be in that one spot. They get invaded. They get taken over. They get taken captive. This is not a good thing if you live in that area. Now, where was Jesus? Well, let's jump forward then into the New Testament because Jesus does not exist on the world roaming around while this was taking place. This is way in the B.C., okay? But let's think about where he was. Well, Isaiah chapter 9 outlines that in contrast to the behavior of Ahaz, there is one, another royal figure who will be of divine character and whose reign will, be, will bring peace, light, and justice. Think about this one. When the person that was in charge, when the person that was this leader, this king Ahaz, the people that lived in Naphtali are starting to think, whoa, this is, this is not working out good for us. But if there's promise of something better coming forward, that makes the days that you're struggling with a little bit more endurable, right? That's where that comes in. That's where that is made perhaps bad. And so it says that the people of Zebulun and Naphtali who have suffered so much, they're going to experience the blessings of a royal savior. Now, let's go a little bit further with that. After being rejected in his own hometown of Nazareth, where does Jesus move to? Well, if you've been here on Wednesday evening, the town that is shown here on this map should look real familiar to you. It seems like every lesson that we've taught on Wednesday night about miracles of Jesus, it all centers around Capernaum. Well, this is the city this orange piece right here is what we would like to call the state. So it'd be Stanford inside of Kentucky to make it make much sense for you. Capernaum is inside of Naphtali. Who have we just read suffered the most under King Ahaz? It was the people of Naphtali. So Jesus is rejected in his hometown of Nazareth, so he goes to this new place, Capernaum. Luke chapter 4, 31 and 32. Then he went down to Capernaum, a city of Galilee, and was teaching them on the Sabbath. And they were astonished at his teaching, for his word was with authority. We see that word used quite often in the New Testament describing the way Jesus taught. They say that he taught with authority. 
Well, let's turn back to Isaiah. What did Isaiah say about what Jesus was going to be in chapter 9? If you look at chapter 9, at the end of verse 6, it said he would be wonderful, counselor, mighty God, everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. All of those descriptors of Jesus in Isaiah are coming true in Luke chapter 4. And the people that are getting to experience it to start with are the people whose ancestors suffered so much at the hands of an invading army. Sometimes there has to be this promise of something better going forward. Now, say, this move to Capernaum fulfilled Isaiah's promise. Matthew chapter 4, verses 13 through 16, we saw this a minute ago with what Pat read. And leaving Nazareth, he came and dwelt Capernaum, which is by the sea, right? That it might be fulfilled what the prophet Isaiah had said. And so this move fulfills Isaiah's prophecy. We said a minute ago, Isaiah is a prophet. Isaiah is telling what's going to happen in the future. Sometimes you may see this on something that you might read or something like that. But how many of you have ever heard something said, don't you want the world to be better for your kids than it was for you. Anybody ever heard something along those lines, right? We want it to be better for our kids than for us. And we want it to be made easier and whatever it might be. Well, that's what Isaiah was saying right there. But he was having to convince these people that things would be better for their ancestors. In fact, it's not just better, but it would be an opportunity for them to be able to have an eternal home in heaven. We see then in these teachings in the New Testament, the people of Capernaum are going all over the place with Jesus. Every lesson we've talked about on Wednesday night, it says that there's a crowd of people with Jesus. He went over here and a crowd followed him. He went over there and a crowd followed him. And so this is fulfilling what Isaiah said. Now, it's easy to read those and just sort of move along, right? But the geography here does matter. I'm not saying you have to be a map person, and I know I am perhaps more than some others. But Isaiah said the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. Think about that. What, the electricity was off in Sanford for like two hours a couple weeks ago. And Lucille went to the store and bought enough lights to be able to give to everybody, right? Lucille bought all these lights. Because she just said, we don't want to be in the dark for an hour, right? Now, we've got lights and we've got all these kind of things. Well, when the lights are out, you don't realize how much you miss it until it's gone, right? Well, the people that lived in Naphtali, things were pretty good until the Assyrians swooped in and took them captive. And it's like, oh, this is bad. Well, it said then, what we read, what we just saw there uh, just a moment ago, the people who sat in darkness have seen a great light. What was the great light? Jesus, right? Jesus was the great light. Light. Zebulun, the tribal territory which Nazareth was located. Naphtali, the tribal territory in which Capernaum was located. The people that had suffered the most, in a sense, were the people who got Jesus first. Some of them probably rejected. But we seem to see there's a whole lot of people that were dragging onto his coattails just to go wherever it was that he went as well. It all started right where Isaiah prophesied. You know, you don't have to have a genius understanding of maps to be a Christian. That's not necessary. But I do think that when we look at these things, it can help bridge the gap. It can help make connections between Old Testament and New Testament. 
when we read this and say, well, Isaiah said it, and the people that they should have said, well, a lot of things are said to us and we don't really understand. And when we look back on them, it leads us to make, it makes a little more sense for us. And so whenever Isaiah says this, if we can plot it on a map, maybe it helps us a little bit better. Stories and sermons of Scripture happen in real places. I think we sometimes forget that. Sometimes we think about the Bible as almost like a storybook in Never Never Land. They were doing this or they were doing that. But there are legitimate places in the Bible where this happened. There are places where people do archaeological digs and all of this. There are stories that happen in areas where there's water and where there's not. And that affects the story. Why was John baptizing where he was? Well, the Bible says because there was much water there. It wouldn't have made sense for him to baptize in a place where there wasn't much water. And so these stories have a geographical tie to them. We would say, well, I think we said the last time, location matters, right? Your realtor's going to tell you that location matters. When you try to sell that house or buy that piece of property, the price is going to be here or here or here, depending on the location around it. Well, the question I'll ask you tonight is, what's your location? Where is your location? I'm not talking about geographically. You can tell me your address. You can tell me the GPS coordinates of this building right now. But the location that I'm asking about is what's the location? What's the geography of our heart? What's the geography of our mind? What's the geography of our salvation? Because that's either a yes or no situation. You're either in or you're out. And sometimes when the location matters, we have to move. And tonight, if the location's not right, we might have to move as well. If there's anything we can do for you, any way we can help you, we invite you to come while we stand and sing. All to Jesus I